0: vegetable I never thought I would try is wild jungle fern <laughs> which seems to be served up on sizzling plates all throughout Borneo and particularly here in Sarawak. Nick can you explain exactly where we are?
1: The place we're dining at is a bit of an institution it's called the Top Spot Food Court and what it is it's basically a whole stack of seafood vendors that have set up on the roof of a car park a number of years ago and they just never left
0: As far as food goes, where does this rate for you?
1: The fern was actually pretty good, tastes sort of like broccolini, if you ever had that before, just with a slightly more rainforesty texture to it.
0: (laughs) Nick, would you say that it's a top spot?
1: No, I wouldn't say that.
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I'm going to stop that there.
1: Mmm, those, those jungle fern are pretty good. And Having said that, Gabby, I, I don't think we went back for them a second time.
0: I can't say it really helped that I cottoned on to all of the side effects of our malaria drug, so uh, it, was a, it was a pretty good night.
1: It was, good, it was a good day, it was a very good day. Hello, this is Where Are You Taking Me? It's episode two. My name is Nick King.
0: And my name is Gabby Lyons.
1: Hey, before we get stuck into today's episode, I want to thank everybody who listened to the very first episode, because we had some fantastic feedback. If you did like it, please subscribe because that'll keep us going. And if you want to see some of the stuff we've been up to, you can check us out on Instagram at Where Are You Taking Me Pod.
0: Not to mention, if you can or if you feel so inclined, feel free to leave a review. We'd love to uh, spread the word a little bit more.
1: Tell us, Gabby, where are we today?
0: I'm very excited about where we are, Nick. So we are in Kuching, which is in Sarawak, one of the larger Malaysian states in Borneo. It looks like a small island. It's not at all. It's broken out down into a number of states. You've got the Indonesian side, then you've got the Malaysian side, which is Sabah, and Sarawak. Then you've got Brunei, its own country in the middle there. But we have predominantly stuck to Sarawak and we're currently sitting in the back of our hostel in Kuching. You can probably hear the backfire of scooters, uh, the occasional cat. It's a little bit of chaos. We are in a major
1: city. We wanted to see more of Borneo whilst we were here. We predominantly stuck to Sarawak because we made A a tiny sort of error. (sighs) Before we got here, we thought the right thing to do would be to book an exit flight. Because in many countries, especially in Southeast Asia, when you arrive, they want to know when you're leaving. So we did that from the Philippines the day before we got here. Problem with that is we didn't realise when we got here, one, we didn't need the flight. And two, we were automatically granted a 90-day visa. So we had heaps of time, but we cut ourselves short by booking this Mm -hmm. flight. We didn't want to spend the money to book another one. Even though we've uh, we've only seen a very small amount of the country, we still have a lot of stuff to show you today. Now, Gabby, Borneo was was your choice. Why did we come here?
0: So I've wanted to come here for quite some time, Nick. It's been pretty high on my list. I've just wanted to meet the Bornean people. It's been known for its tribes and its very wild, unruly, untamable side. There are over 30 different kind of indigenous groups all throughout Sarawak. And when you look throughout the history, it's one of those countries that has been passed from hand to hand between mm-hmm. India, China, um, an English ruler that came in and was called the White Raja. There's history of head hunting here. There's something so wild and Untamable about Borneo that I was really excited to visit, which wasn't exactly what we found.
1: (laughs) What was it that made you pull the trigger, though? There was an event.
0: (sighs) So pretty much, Nick, after a little bit of Googling around, we stumbled across the Rainforest World Music Festival. So this music festival has been around since 1998. So quick math, that's around 20 years. On the first year, it had 300 people come to the music festival. Now, over 20,000 people migrate to the Sarawak Cultural Village every year to see bands from all over the world. And when we started mentioning this to some of our friends, we had multiple friends say to us, oh, that's been on my bucket list. We absolutely have to go. So we booked our tickets. I think the moment they went on sale, you and I grabbed some tickets, it fell into place, and we kind of planned our shuffle around Asia knowing we'd make it to Kuching for the festival.
1: Now that's what got us here. One of the other biggest draw cards is to see the orangutan. And if you come to Kuching, there's a place called Samango Nature Reserve. It's like a big, open piece of parkland, every day they have two feedings, of the orangutan. They're not enclosed in this area at all, but they can just turn up and feed if they so choose to. Uh, sometimes, though, like the day we went, <laughs> they don't. Do you see much shaking of trees so far?
0: No, I keep thinking it's a shaking of a tree and then look closer and it's definitely a butterfly. But these orangutan have not always been wild. In fact, the orangutan that you will see at Samango more than likely were kept at zoos or as pets or have totally lost their homes through deforestation, all kinds of issues that you can get into when you come to Borneo. But those animals were released from another place called Matang. Matang Wildlife Center, which is a very different experience. And quite frankly, I don't know if we would have enjoyed it had it not been for one very special person.
2: The one over that site. Yeah, Yeah, that was caught from Bako River. Sometime always seen um, uh, just below the jetty of the people. We don't want that uh, it could be, um, it will disturb, you know, our children always play at the edge of the water at the river there. So this is Ms uh, Mazlan, the retired medical technologies. At the same time, I'm, uh, I'm also a homeopathic medical doctor, and I, I obtained the, uh, a PhD in uh, naturopathic medical uh, medicine. I'm now a guide. Matangwala Centre, I get involved when I do the supply for the uh, equipment in the clinic so when the the veterinarian there says that we don't have anybody to look after this this uh, uh equipment can you help us to look for somebody who can do the volunteer for the equipment and doing all the health uh, service screening for the for the animals then out tell them i can do this if you want me to 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 involve directly in this i can do it for you so they said, okay, in that case, you, I employ, we employ you as a, as a volunteer officer here. This way I can do all this, this health screening for the orangutan, for the, uh, for the sun bears, for the deer.
1: Matang Wildlife Centre, around 45 minutes out of Kuching, is a rehabilitation centre for animals that have been orphaned or kept illegally as pets. Their goal is to eliminate human dependency so the orangutan can be released back into the wild, often at the more regularly visited Samango. As you heard a moment ago, Musla has a very personal connection to the center. He helped establish the clinic on-site and also played a vital role in rescuing orangutan. Musla walked us around the center to meet some of the orangutan that he saved and others that he helped to raise. cham. 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 You see staring at me.
2: We train them as when they are still as big as this. Yeah chocolate was as big as this but chocolate never want to be to be carried mm-hmm. he always hug my leg like this on, the, on my leg so i have to bring into the jungle for two kilometers i have to walk, to walk with uh, with him <coughs> on my leg and chiam on my back and doris on my chiam is always on my back here uh-huh. okay and uh, chocolate is here and uh, doris is always always bring on your side uh, yeah side and Danti was uh, with my uh,
1: my other partner When you visit Matang it feels run down, the grass is overgrown, some of the enclosures are rusting, there's paint peeling off the walls, the whole place just feels kind of deserted. Not only by visitors but by staff and most importantly funding. We saw almost nobody when we visited. Few tourists stop by because they don't want to see the orangutan in an enclosure and they don't understand what Matang is trying to achieve. How do you teach an animal that for years has been spoon-fed by humans to hunt and climb and be self-sufficient. How do you train the wild back into a wild animal? As you have seen just now, when we touch the gibbons' hand, you can feel that.
2: You can feel that how the gibbons are feeling. Gibbons also want, need the freedom. But of course, we do understand how the gibbons feel. We want the gibbon to be free, but what to do? We don't want to put uh, the gibbon out of our cage because when we put the gibbon out of the cage, the gibbon will die. Of course, they cannot adapt the wild uh, environment. And of course, the gibbon will go to the human to get some shelter and food. Again, they become become the uh, human captivity. So we don't want that to happen. We want people to understand that the conservation policy that we are doing, we are not actually keeping the animals inside the cage, just for fun because we want people to understand why we keep the animal inside the cage It's because we want people to know that if we release the animal to the wild the animal will die then our conservation policy become useless if possible if there is any possibility for them to visit matang please visit matang we want them to to have a positive thinking about our conservation activities and uh, we don't keep the animals inside the cage just uh, to make uh, Matang Wildlife Centre just like zoo—that That is not our concept and that is not
1: our policy. If you come into Kuching, Matang should be on your list. It won't be the wild experience you'll get at Samango, but without the support of tourism, there's very little hope for the rehabilitation program. And as for Musla, if it wasn't for people like him sharing his story and his passion for the orangutan, there's no chance that they will ever return to the wild.
2: Working with these people, I, I with this with this animal, I can tell you, I really miss them. I really miss of working with them. If possible, I try to to come back.
1: So you think you'll come back one day though, if you can?
2: Yeah, why not? I, I I'm I'm willing to come back. If they said, okay, Maslan, you can you can join us. Of course, I'm willing. I'm willing to come back. <laughs> I miss them so much. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Musla was not just an incredible guy. He was also a fascinating person. Being able to hear his stories of working in the facility, help raise the orangtang, and seeing the potential in them, it was really emotional. As we left and walked out of the gate, he actually ended up in tears as he was walking away from the centre again because he just so desperately wants to get back there if the opportunity presented itself. And, Gab, that was a pretty emotionally tough day for you as well. Mm,
0: there was a... There was one moment that uh, had me pretty close to tears as well, actually. (laughs) There was uh, one enclosure that had a little gibbon inside it. He was by himself, as I put my hand out towards this gibbon, it placed its hand right in my palm and stared right into my eyes oh my word it just about broke my heart and absolutely accentuated everything that musler had to say how how could you ever release this little guy into the wild he was so dependent on human feeding was just so aware of human interaction and was so there was so much trust in me and uh, goodness it, it was it was just absolutely heartbreaking So of course, if you're going to come to Borneo, not everything is here in Kuching. It's not all in the city. You have to you have to get out to the jungle and Nick, there was one place that you absolutely had to visit. You absolutely wanted to go to and you made sure that none of my you plans could disa- get in the way.
1: You weren't disappointed. <laughs>
0: I was not disappointed.
1: So my idea of Borneo is to get out into the jungle mm. to see these great, dramatic, picturesque national parks and there's none that fits that bill more accurately than the Gunning Mooloo National Park, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it has been since 2005. Now we sort of ummed and about whether we were going to go there because we thought there was going to be a fair bit of expense involved. To get to Mooloo you need to fly out there because there's no roads. You need to stay there for a few days, then if you want to do any of the tours, which you're going to do if you're going to go there, that costs money as well. Mm-hmm. The sort of genesis of the park itself is this amazing cave system. There's a great big list of caving opportunities, everything from very easy walks you can take kids on to serious hardcore three and four day treks. So if you're going to go... You want to line up a few cave tours, yeah?
0: Yeah, do your research. What was it, 220 kilometres of cave?
1: Yeah, there's one called the Clearwater Cave System, which they reckon at one point is going to become the longest cave system in the world because mm. there's there's little avenues and smaller caves that go off. it at the moment, it's around about 220 k's. But I think it's next year they're sending in another mission of expert cavers to see how deep this thing goes. It's enormous, and that's just one of I think a couple of hundred caves they said are actually mm-hmm. in the park. And there's so many of them that are open when you go and stay there and that you can visit. We went to maybe five or six different caves in four days.
0: Yeah, something like that.
1: And it was yeah. actually pretty affordable too. Yeah. Once you got out there, we stayed in the park at one of the dorms, it was pretty cheap. It was around about 15 bucks a night. Mm-hmm. Most of the cave tours worked out to about the same, so it wasn't nearly as expensive as we thought. Do you reckon it was good value for money I had to convince you to go?
0: <laughs> I absolutely loved it. It's not even all about the caves. We went on a night walk through the jungle with nothing but a headlamp and spotted some pretty crazy jungle insects, and not to mention just sitting in the dark, turning that light off and just taking in all of the surrounds and the night sounds of the jungle. Doesn't Terrifying. It, doesn't
1: make you feel incredibly small when you're oh, out in the middle of the rainforest <laughs> and you turn the lights off and everyone shuts up and you just sit there Mm -hmm. you feel like the smallest thing not just in the rainforest but on the planet Mm -hmm. Uh, i did say we went to a number of caves which one was your favorite
0: i would have to say the garden of eden tour now this was through a deer cave but as you climb through it you then hike for 45 minutes into the depths of the crazy oh you're leaving
1: you're leaving out a very vital detail here you do a fair bit of crawling and climbing over rocks through this cave through the guano. Do you want to tell everyone what the guano is? No,
0: I think you enjoyed the guano more than I did.
1: I didn't enjoy it. I don't think anybody enjoyed it. Guano is, it's bat feces. So this cave we crawled through is home to, they reckon, four million bats, and their droppings have got to go somewhere, and that goes onto the surface of the cave, which we paid very good money to crawl through. You have a a singlet that you haven't worn since the incident. (laughs)
0: It's been washed a handful of times, but I just don't trust it yet.
1: (laughs) But the reward on the other side of the cave is worth it?
0: Absolutely. You then go trudging through, granted leech infested jungle.
1: (laughs) It wasn't leech infested, you were the only person that got a leech. Okay
0: yeah but it was gross. (laughs) But you keep hiking through the jungle for 45 odd minutes and you end up at the most beautiful waterfall that was just pristine and clear. It's called the Garden of Eden for a reason.
1: Keep in mind we're making this sound almost torturous but as I said before as well (laughs) there's so many different levels of caves and there's heaps Mm. of families out there. If you just go and type into Google or something Mulu National Park even just Mulu National Park, and see some of the images. It's so hard for us to sell the grand scale and nature of this place to you. It's um, it's really something else, Mm. and it's centuries old too, isn't it?
0: Probably what I enjoyed the most about Mulu and all of the cave tours that we did was that your guides are pretty essential to the history of Mulu, and that is because they are from the Penan tribe for the most part. The Penan tribe is one of the many tribes (laughs) throughout Mm. Sarawak but they are traditionally mountain jungle people they're very very shy they're very very modest and very very difficult to speak to
1: (laughs) but you tried
0: I tried very hard to speak with some of the Penan people we managed to rope the lovely Simpson in to have a chat with me and tell us a little bit more about who the Penan are and how their life has been changed in recent years, particularly because of the park, but also just the way that the modern world works now, in having to settle a tribe that, for as long as history can document, have been totally nomadic.
3: Okay, so this uh, Penang tribe, they uh, have a dance also. Like uh, other people, they have a dance, every tribe, because the Penang people, they have a do during their fruit season, or harvesting, yeah? so they have to celebrate it together and have collect a lot of fruit, a lot of animal and do like a party, so they have to uh, do the Penan dance. There's normally there's a dance and we have uh, like a Penan instrument and make by bamboo or wood or nose flute. Normally there's uh, an old person, they're still really good in playing it. Yeah, Do yeah? you play? Uh, some of it only, but not so much, but still keep learning to. My name is uh, Simpson Steven Ipa eh? traditional Penan lifestyle So in the past, in the previous we are totally nomadic people eh? This means we stay in the forest So this uh, we don't have any settlement We just make uh, like a small shelter in the jungle So they just uh, keep moving in the jungle So maybe they stay at same place Maybe two weeks or one month After that they have to move again the reason is to maintain the forest so they not take all of this source of the forest like a plant or animal so before it finish at that area so they have move again so the plant is growing again so maybe next time they coming back to the same place again na eh? so now there's a uh, government they have uh, put the penan in settlement like in Batu Bungan eh? okay so this uh, what is a good thing about the park here Mulu that give the Penang this like uh, opportunity for walk as a guide, as a board operator and walk with the park here. So it means they try to teach us about this uh, conservation eh? because in the past we just depending on the forest source, hunting and collect a lot of this uh, forest source and now they give us this uh, job.
0: Was it difficult for some of the elders of the traditional Penang tribe to start learning to live in one place rather than nomadic was that difficult to do?
3: Okay so to transform from nomadic to settlement actually that's uh, not too difficult because they still do this uh, semi-nomadic that's how we learn to transform There's eh? that's like uh, from nomadic so they have a settlement so if they're not really comfortable at settlement so they can go in for the forest maybe one week or two weeks just collect what they need and coming back again yeah. It's not uh, getting hard for them. Yeah. Even they have a park, so they still have a privilege for the Penan people for hunting a certain area, but not for all of animal. but only for this, their own consumption, not for sale. Eh? They still practice the culture, they not forget it.
0: So are there still tribes that are out in the jungle? Are there still people living really deep into the forest, further than anywhere we've been able to track in the last couple of days?
3: Okay, so in Mulu we still have uh, a few family There's uh, totally nomadic, but it's a very small family, maybe 10 family, roughly like that. Maybe they're somewhere at uh, Sungai Obong area, but very hard to see them because they're always moving. Yeah?
0: You're the newer generation of the Penan tribe. Is it nice to still feel really attached to the jungle as well as teaching other people and growing with the modern world? Is that a nice connection for you?
3: Like uh, what I feel when I do this job, yeah, that's my opinions and knowledge of the jungle is combined with this uh, what I have to learn in the school. That's a very good combination to teach other people. Eh? Yeah. Because the knowledge in the jungle we can't find anyway, even in college or university. Yeah. But that one we have to learn from our descendants for the next generation. Also we have to teach them. Eh? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. Like what we have to do, like a survival skill in the forest. And what is the plant it, they can uh, eat, which one is the poison to make for this uh, blowpipe for hunting, so we have to learn all of it.
1: We really want to thank Simpson for having a chat to us. As you would have heard there, the Penan people are very, they're sort of shy and they're modest, but he took the time out to sit down and have a chat with us and gave us a really valuable insight into what it's like to be a Penan person. and to work back on that land. And a number of the guides there are from the Penan tribe, they're the younger generation. Remember Anthony, who took us on that Garden of Eden trek that you said before, you remarked to him at one stage when we were hiking through the jungle. He was doing so without holding on to trees or leaning on things. He was basically skipping through there. And his response to you is that, My people have been walking this trail for years and years. We know it like the back of our hand, whilst you and I are clutching (laughs) at vines and trying not to slide on mud and doing all sorts of stuff. And it's a walk in the park for him. It's really fascinating Mm. to watch that happen.
0: Yeah, that was pretty amazing. But honestly, if, like me, you were wanting to visit Borneo in hope of finding these traditional people, finding the indigenous people of the land who are going to share those wild stories of Borneo it is a lot harder (laughs) than I expected.
1: If you come to Kuching, you will be offered the chance to go out to a place called the Anna Race Longhouse. Now, the Longhouse is the traditional homes of the tribal people of Borneo. Anna Race, though, is a total tourist trap. We Mm. spoke to a number of people, even Borneans, who'd been out there and said, "Ah, it's it's not so traditional. So you can find the traditional tribes, you can find the traditional longhouses, but it's going to take a bit of time and you're going to have to venture very deep into rivers and into jungles to find them.
0: Yeah, it is going to mean full days on boats or long flights way up into the mountains to find some of these people. But if I'm honest, Nick, something that really caught me off guard about Borneo was just that there are a lot of issues happening for the Indigenous people here one of which would have to be deforestation (laughs) and how that has encroached on so much of the jungle and as with the penan people it has meant a total change in lifestyle for them it has meant settling in a smaller town and learning to modernize and i think that has affected a lot of the people throughout indigenous borneo and it has meant a really massive cultural shift for them to a point where some of the culture has actually been forgotten
1: Gabby, that was particularly true with the modern generation. When we were at the Rainforest World Music Festival, we came across a group of artists. In fact, there was one great big painting that caught my eye. It was of a man. He's sitting in what's left of a forest. The whole thing is being cleared. And next to him was an orangutan who was holding a massive leaf over him. Obviously, this was a message about deforestation. The broader picture, though, was this was a group of artists who wanted to use the power of art and also music to highlight their loss of okay. cultural identity. The person, he cut the, all the
4: tree, but the but the animal still undercover him from the sun. So the the animal didn't hate him, but he still loved him. People they don't care about the animals. And then the animals they didn't have the place to stay. Their home already gone.
0: Does that make you sad that that's happening?
2: Yeah, it's
4: moving. Now in Sabah, we have a rhinos, but already gone. Uh, already dead uh, around three weeks before this. Wow! Yeah, there's none left. None left. So no, no more rhinos in Sabah. And then uh, the about the elephant already or oh, not more. A chance that because this is our people mind. Yeah. yeah if you people can think about the animal, about the nature, they can they can change the that.
0: Is that something that the art collective would like to change? Yeah. I don't know. yeah. One piece of work at a time. Yeah. <laughs>
5: Hi, my name is Catriona. I'm from the UK originally, but I've been living in Sarawak for the last nine years. This weekend we're running a program called Borneo Benkel, which started in 2017 in October as an arts residency for artists from Sarawak and Sabah, which are two states in uh, Malaysian Borneo. Benkel in Bahasa Malayu, the language of Malaysia, means workshop. So it is a Bornean workshop and there's five important elements of Borneo Benkel. So one is to meet. We introduce lots of artists from all over this island and some invited guests from outside of Malaysia, Uh, I'm one of them, (laughs) together. uh, We teach, so we teach within the group of our collaborators and also to the public. Uh, We share, so we have a lot of uh, discussion sessions. Last year we had 20 talks by different anthropologists and that was one of the ways to get young artists engaging with their history by actually having experts, academics, researchers sharing these traditional stories and and then the artists could respond to them showing, so an important part is obviously showing through exhibitions, performances on a weekend which are open to the public and then the last one is selling so obviously to make the platform sustainable and to support artists. You mentioned there like having educators talk about the history, do a lot of the young artists not know that history? It's very much the case um, the Malaysian education system is much more focused on West Malaysia so actually in the, the National Dialogue Sarawak Sarawak and Sabah are actually some of the biggest states in the country, but very isolated. Um, So many West Malaysians don't really understand what it means to be Sarawakian and Sabahan, and so the education system... Is, is you know a mirror of that yeah. um, so yes actually uh, a lot of a lot of our collaborators didn't know the traditional stories and it was the first opportunity for them to engage and learn and share and and build on that it makes me really sad every time an elder dies it's it's like a library burning down because if that knowledge isn't recorded if it's not written down then it's, it's gone forever so it just takes one generation to skip and and then it's gone so that's why yeah Borneo Benkel is really important to get this traditional knowledge give it To the young, and culture isn't something that's static, it should evolve, it does change, and so taking traditional culture and letting modern artists adapt and make it relevant to them. I've noticed
0: with a lot of the work is there's a lot of mention of a loss of identity, a lot of deforestation, commercialism. What is the movement that's happening with a lot of the
5: Bornean people as far as expressing that through art? We're blessed to have some fantastic artists from uh, from Sabah, they're called Pancroxilap and basically they are social activists and through their art they tell the story of like you said corruption, deforestation, basically the struggles of indigenous people here, uh, access to land, uh, environmental degradation, and um, I think they basically express a lot of angry feelings, a lot of sentiments that people have, but in this really beautiful uh, woodcut artwork that they do, which is, uh, behind us we've got eight foot by four foot artworks Yes, Yes, done on one piece of wood. Kat, you've been here for
0: nine years, you said beforehand. So in that nine years, have you noticed that struggle as well that you said these artists are really trying to um, make obvious is that struggle for traditional Bornean culture? Is that something you've noticed with the Indigenous issues
5: here? I mean, it's something, yeah, that I'm very aware of. I I work with rural communities. Uh, I I run a social enterprise and I work with uh, isolated rural communities. But I'm also based in the city. So I see the the flip side of the coin of urban artists and rural artists. And there is definitely a disconnect. Um, When people talk about Borneo, they talk about orangutans and they talk about hornbills. But these are very kind of cliche, exotic images. um, And people in the city, it doesn't necessarily feel relevant to them. So there's definitely a disconnect and that's one of the things that we're trying to do with Borneo Benkel is take traditional knowledge, traditional heritage and work with contemporary artists and see how they can make all of those motifs more meaningful in a a modern world. In all, we're 40 different artists. It's definitely about engaging the community with art, engaging them and and helping them to develop a message which they can then present. So I think the main message of of this is, is trying to capture, a real story the real Bornean feel um, and trying to make these traditions or the tribes as people say how relevant it is in a modern world and 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 to really embrace that rather than playing along with cultural tropes
1: if you want to see some of the work of borneo ben kel we put a video up on our instagram page at where are you taking me pod it's the guys revealing one of their wood carved ink on canvas prints.
0: But Nick, we did come here for one very specific reason. The Rainforest World Music Festival. This has been running for 20 years. This is our first year. What did you think?
1: It was nothing like I expected. Mm-hmm. I've been to stacks of music festivals back home and you know, you go to one of those, there's a number of different stages and you're kind of pushing and shoving through crowds to see music all day. You're always checking your timetable to make sure you don't miss anything. It was absolutely nothing like that.
0: No, not at all.
1: The site the festival's held on is the Sarawak Cultural Village, which, for every other day of the year, it's a lake, there's a timber boardwalk that goes around it, and there's a series of different replicas of traditional longhouses belonging to the various tribes of Borneo. The Iban tribe, the Orangulu tribe, the Penan tribe... And they made really great little venues for some of the workshops and activities that were taking place at the festival. Mm. So during the day, it's workshops, it's shopping, it's socialising. And at night, that's when the music starts from about 7 o'clock onwards. It's a party.
0: Mm. Did you have a favourite band? Any music that you didn't really expect to like and fell in love with?
1: There's some that I'll definitely listen to again. What you've got to keep in mind, though, is this is the Rainforest World Music Festival, Mm. and they take that title very literally. The music that is playing is cultural music from nations all over the world. And I'd never heard Korean cultural music before, but the band that turned up and played had this really persistent... Sound of drums and gongs and they have all this traditional dance that went along with it. I thought it was quite psychedelic and repetitive and sort of drony and that's mm. that's totally my bag. There's no two ways about it but it really, it caught my attention and the songs are stuck in my head now, it really surprised me
0: Yeah, I know you didn't really like the Moldovian girls but I quite enjoyed them they were kind of this cool, droning, throat singing that moved into these kind of cool rock ballads but then some of the local music from the Sarawakian bands as well there was one in particular called Sukmini that were just fantastic, I so thoroughly enjoyed them I'm
1: sorry, um, those Moldovian girls were rubbish <laughs> they were terrible <laughs> they
0: were Oh, it's terrible. that sounds
1: like the saddest disco of all time, okay,
0: moving on, that was my opinion, not yours, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but the workshops that you mentioned beforehand they were probably my favorite part of the entire festival, and they are the workshops are something that I wish i 'd emphasized a little bit more and really took the time to get out of bed before 10 in the morning to go and actually take part they ranged from yoga to brooch making to traditional dances from the different ethnicities and indigenous groups from all around Borneo even venturing into the next state along in Sabah and they were so much fun not to mention getting bands from all over the world pulling them all together and getting them to play loot sessions that again if you want to jump onto our Instagram page we put up a couple of videos of these workshops they were so much
1: fun. As an experience It was really immersive in a festival where you can go to learn as much as you can to listen to as much.
0: Let alone going to a festival where there are indeed kids running around. And the demographic at this festival was so interesting. There were families, there were a whole bunch of locals, a whole bunch of travellers. It was this really massive melting pot of cultures. But Saturday night, the middle night of the festival, was the most fun. Mostly because that was clearly party night for everybody in Malaysia.
1: Yeah, that's where all the locals turned up. The amount of random selfies I ended up in, uh-huh. just with local people who then shook my hand and said, welcome to Borneo. They were so excited <laughs> that you would come to see the way they party. And that, that was so clearly their one night of the year where they do something massive.
0: Yeah, and there was no rice wine left at any
1: of those bars. <laughs> like I said, though, that first day for me, it was a little bit confusing. And you also said the site was small, so you were constantly running into the same people over and over again so we wanted to find out how the Rainforest World Music Festival compared to similar festivals they'd been to back home. The Rainforest World Music Festival 2018
5: certainly different from the other festivals I've been to, uh, especially the weather, being from Ireland and the UK they're always horrible weather with rain, so that's the main difference of say it's nicer weather here. Population-wise certainly different, there's a massive variety here, there's locals, there's people with their children, there's a lot of westerners, and um, I was sort of wasn't really expecting as many western people to be here, I thought it was going to be a bit more of like a local experience rather than a lot of international people being here. Certainly all the other festivals have been to probably more people drinking and getting full. Here's more chilled out, I think. I think Connor said yesterday it was like like the Eurovision, except for in a rainforest. Which is a very good
1: comparison, I think. Because
5: <laughs> you're getting all these different nations and it's just strange to be in a rainforest at a music festival compared to home where you just be in a big field.
0: Do you mind explaining what's happening behind us right now as well?
1: It's a,
5: a big massive flag and people throwing at each other and trying to catch it in their heads. heads together full so Come on, put that's
2: interesting together. <laughs>
5: So I think it was really good but I think one day is enough but the live music in the night is really good, really interesting and like a real mix of tunes. I really enjoyed it and I think compared to other festivals it's not like the stereotypical music festivals you'd imagine back at home.
0: So how does the Rainforest World Music Festival compare to other festivals you've been to in
1: the world? It's, uh, It's a lot more intimate, it's a lot more... Kind of like family it's a little more wholesome um there's a huge diversity here that i haven't seen anywhere else in terms of like every um I'm just getting to kick of seeing all the different accents from like, you know, participants and the uh, and people performing.
2: I feel like back home we have a lot of festivals that try to strive to be something like this, but this is definitely a more authentic version of it. So you actually get to see acts from people that, that this is what they do for their whole life and they're very passionate about it. And so I think that makes it a little bit different than somebody trying to play that out instead of it you know, being who they really are. We were just at a performance, that turned into a Bollywood movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Zali, how does the Rainforest World Music Festival compare to other festivals you've been to?
5: Well, I think the Rainforest World Music Festival has a bigger
4: focus on culture, and particularly Indigenous culture, so it's been really great to see the um,
0: Indigenous bands from Sarawak play, and their costumes and dancing, so it's been awesome, and good vibes. Less. Something you'd come back to? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully every year. We'll see if I can make it. So that's just about all we've got time for in today's episode. Hang
1: on, hang on, hang on. wait, wait. Nice try. Nice try. No, 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 no. No, we're out of got time. We're out of time. For no, the no, other no, 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 no. Before we leave Kuching, there was one thing that I, I desperately wanted to do, and it's taken a good week and a half of convincing to get you there.
0: Mate, there was no convincing. You literally hauled me into a cab. We
1: had a free day. It's something I really wanted to do. My more limbs than more were still sore
0: from dancing. More than the
1: festival. Yeah. More than finding the Indigenous people. I desperately wanted to take you somewhere special to me. That's why we decided to spend our very last day here in Kuching at the Cat Museum. <music> We're in Cat Gallery A. So we've just come across a cabinet that's full of pictures of men holding cats. (laughs) That guy's holding a cat. That guy's holding a cat. That guy looks like Tom Jones.
0: Oh, he does too. Why doesn't that guy have a cat?
1: Because he's got a resemblance to Tom Jones. He doesn't need anything else. He's already been gifted. (laughs) I didn't really expect to be getting my art fix at the cat museum. What we can see here is um, two cats. A man cat and a lady cat. And the man cat is dressed (laughs) like a redneck with a big hat and a red scarf and a bottle of whiskey. And the mama cat, she's dressed in lace with an old doily hat and in the foreground there's a roast chicken (laughs) this next photo is of two kitties and they're in in a pretend little bathroom and one of them is smoking a cigarette
0: and I think one of them has like a porno magazine shoved down his trousers yeah, oh he does
1: too
2: (laughs) what is going on?
1: this is so good, look Two little cats in kimonos. Two little cats dressed as Tokyo cops with their bikes. Let's look at the sign, because we're in the Cats in Japanese Community Exhibition. No wonder they're all dressed as traditional Japanese people, except this Irish cat.
0: There is a Hitler cat.
1: (laughs) Oh, also not Japanese. Okay, you ready for Gallery B? You
0: have to follow the little kitty cat paw prints that are on the ground.
1: Of course you do. Of course. Cats in action. This is cats that have been used in motivational posters. <laughs> <clears throat> Hang on, don't go away. What's this first one?
0: This is a picture of a really scared looking taxidermy cat and an owl in the front of a boat. That is an ad for British Telecom apparently saying give a friend a ring if you've been away.
1: Uh, another cat sitting on a log. Does God seem far away? Guess who moved? What does that mean? What's wrong? You're not enjoying your time at the cat museum.
0: I don't understand. Why are we here? I don't understand why there are
1: cats. Because Everyone... culture. People friggin' love cats. The internet's going to eat this up.
0: That was weird. It was
1: not weird.
0: It was... So weird. The
1: cat museum, it holds a place of high civic importance in Kuching. Mm. Uh, the story goes that in Malaysian language, the word Kuching, K-U-C-I-N-G, means cats. The town of Kuching, K-U-C-H-I-N-G, sounds an awful lot like Kuching, so they've adopted the term, the Cat City. So for no particular reason as you walk around town, there's cat statues there's Cat Hedges. The Cat Museum itself is right next to the office of the Mayor of the North of Kuching because they want to keep all that stuff very close because they're very prized possessions of the Cat City and I think it would be, don't look at me like that Mm. I think that would be I think it would be massive oversight for this podcast and it's reputable nature not to cover something of such importance to the people of Kuching.
0: Well I'm glad you had a wonderful day Nick.
1: We had a wonderful day.
0: Have we run out of time yet? I think so (laughs) So listen, if you are planning your trip to Borneo, two weeks is simply not enough. (laughs) Do a little more research. I just think that we're going to have to come back. It's as simple as that.
1: Someone heard us talking about the cat museum. Yeah, we definitely have to come back. We've still got half of the country to see. Exactly. Before we go today, though, we'd like to take you back to the Rainforest World Music Festival one more time and introduce you to a band called Rawi. They're a local band from Sarawak, and they played on the Friday at the festival. When we saw them, though, they were just sitting on the beach with a couple of ringing musos just having a bit of a jam.
0: (laughs)
2: uh,
0: You've been listening to Where Are You
1: Taking Me. I'm Gabby Lyons. And I'm Nick King. Thank you so much for joining us for episode two from right here in Borneo. If you like it, please subscribe. We will forever be in your debt. And for more, you can find us on Instagram as well at Where Are You Taking Me Pod. We want to
0: send a special thank you to all of the bands from the Rainforest World Music Festival that have allowed us to use their music in today's episode, and also we'd like to thank the team from the festival for letting us record on site.
1: We really had a great time, and I cannot wait to come back. Now though, we have to pack our bags and leave. It's time to move on. We'll see you back here real soon on the Where Are You Taking Me podcast.
4: Oh, oh, oh. La, blue, La, blue,
1: so how was the cat museum?
0: I'm never letting you choose a museum ever again
1: why that was amazing
0: I still don't understand why this is Why there is a cat museum here. This is the
1: best 25 minutes of your holiday so far. Don't tell me it wasn't.
4: (laughs) Did you actually
1: enjoy that? Did you actually enjoy
5: that? Yes, of course I did. It was so good.